and welcome to season two of Beyond Philanthropy. We are so excited to be in our second year of recording and going into this year, we have a theme that we're going to be kind of exploring throughout the season and that theme is disruption. This season, we're going to have more guests. We're going to talk about more big picture topics, where the problems are, where changes should be made, what we should be questioning as people, individuals, but also as professionals, and how we should go about disrupting the process. Welcome to Beyond Philanthropy. Hello, and welcome to Beyond Philanthropy. I am Valerie, and I do not sound like myself today because I am battling a never-ending cold. So I am going to toss it to Monique, and with Monique, it will stay today. So Monique is going to introduce you to our guest and uh, lead the conversation. So Monique, take it away. Welcome to this month's episode of Beyond Philanthropy. This is Monique, and this month we will be discussing systemic change and how to really make community impact and who else to help us talk about our journey in that practice other than Michael Henson from Self. Now, I'm really weird where I don't like people reading my bios, um, and I also feel bad because then I don't ask others for their bios. So I hope Mike's okay, but... Would you mind hopping in and just telling people why you're amazing? Because I think you're amazing. So tell the listeners who you are and why you are amazing. Well, I think the first reason I'm amazing is because my mama <laughs> said, you're amazing. Oh, that's all that right? matters. My mama said that. And uh, I, think that's the, I think that's the first reason uh, why I'm amazing. I embrace being amazing. It's a tough road to travel at times, but mm-hmm. I certainly embrace being amazing. I mean, my work... Over the last, whew, I, I'll say 20 plus years because I don't want to say 30 plus years, right? <laughs> but my, my work over the last 20 plus years has been really about, you know, systemic change and about, you know, things that really make a difference, not just today, but tomorrow mm-hmm. and into the future. And that's kind of always been uh, my sort of focus. I haven't really sort of focused on you know, just the things that are the here and right now, even as important as the here and right now is. Um, but I know that for people who look like me, people who socialize like me, people who live in communities like me, the here and now is just not the answer, right? It is mm-hmm. how do we actually go back, look at all of the things that got us here and now and say, what of that really needs to change so that we can be sustained, right? That we can be vibrant, that we can live happily ever after whatever world that exists in, right? So, you know, I'm just, I'm always excited about work. I'm always excited about the opportunity that's been given to me to make a difference, right? People, particularly Black women in my life have made such a huge difference in my own trajectory, my own worldview. And I, I feel like my, my existence is owed to what they invested. Mm. And so my work is always centered, you know, with that kind of thought. It's always centered on my grandmother who told me when I was 11 or 10 or 11 um, to always treat people with respect, right? And it was after one of my uncles had a friend who was trans and 
he has, there were 11 children, my, my, my dad's brothers and sisters, it was 11 of them. And my uncle was one of the younger ones. And he had a friend who was trans and his brothers uh, used to make fun of him because he had a friend who was trans. And my grandmother overheard it one day. I, of course, didn't know what trans was um, at 10 or 11. And she said that to me and it stuck out with me. Like from that day into everything, um, that's what's always stuck out to me. And so it's always important for me to recognize um, the beauty in everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, recognize the challenge in everyone and that uh, that is where we are common. That is where we are together. That is where we can work together. And systemic change is desperately, desperately needed so that these sort of cycles of repetitive poverty and you know, getting stuck, we can unchain that, right? And so that's what my work is. That's what my work is all about. I've worked, obviously, you know, as the founder of Colors and um, one of the co-founders of Black Gay Pride and the first LGBT liaison for the city of Philadelphia. You know, all of those things really have been about, you know, in, in my opinion, have been about like, what can I do systemically uh, to make uh, make a difference in the world? So, I mean, you have, like the ideal background, because you're in the nonprofit space, you sit as a funder, but you've also been a public policy advisor to a mayoral administration in Philadelphia, which focused on everything from homelessness to education. So you understand the three main facets of this space. So how, in your opinion, do you think that we should be defining what systemic change looks like bringing those three different worlds together? The easiest thing for me to think about as and sort of like as an academic in some way is like this sort of map thing, right? And mm-hmm. it is that a, a situation, right? Because I, I rarely try to think of things as problems, right? I try to think of them as situations. And the situation sits someplace in the middle and it has legs, it has tentacles, it has arms that reach all of these different places, right? And that kind of work, understanding what the situation is, what it reaches, and how it impacts all of those different places is the first part of doing something about systemic change. And unfortunately, what happens is our systems, our people, our funders, really haven't invested in that kind of approach, right? Mm-hmm. It is, we identify one piece of it that may, as an example, um, gun violence is a huge, huge issue, right? But it is born of something. It is not born of people being born in eight around hate, right? It is not born of that. It is born of something that is connected to systems, right? Yeah. And unless we unpack that, we don't get to a place where we can really deal with systemic change. It's like all of the silos are there. We have a bunch of people addressing silos, but especially for black and brown people, if we don't address the root causes and we don't connect them to the root causes, it's impossible to make a systemic difference. We might be able to save a few lives here and there. We might be able to get a few people housed here and there, but a cycle is going to happen where we're going to find ourselves right back in the same cycle, like the housing bubble. Now folks are talking about there's going to be another housing bubble. Well, how could that be, right? Didn't we just have a housing bubble, (laughs) Right. right? And it is because 
you know, we aren't, we have not, we either don't have the political will or we simply aren't investing in real systemic change, even if it's what people say they want to do, right? Mm. It is, it's work. It is. It's work. And it makes people uncomfortable to say that something that they perceive Mm. has worked systemically for 400 years should actually be changed. Right. And that's why you have to do that kind of mapping thing. Right. So people can really understand, like, you really think that that has worked. Let's show you. Let's show you. Seventy eight percent of the people experiencing homelessness and seeking homelessness services in Philadelphia are black people. And we make up 40 percent of the population, but 78 percent of the population seeking homeless services are black people. Ninety two percent of the families seeking homeless services are black families. So when you when, if you want to tell me it's working. I'm telling you right there by this data, that's your own data, that it's right. not working. That it's right. Not. And we have to deal with it systemically if we're going to really if we really want to make a change. If we really, really wanted to change the quality of life, the transformational nature of our communities, we have to acknowledge that that 78%, that 92% is problematic. And it means not you as an individual, right? Right. But you as a system have to do something different. People get caught up on the difference and say, because they say, oh, I I own it. It's it's me. I'm in charge of this. And you're saying I did something wrong. No, darling, that's... Is we're not really that important, right? right? It's the system. It's the system. You can't do it on your own. Like right. you can't, you can't own it. It's too <clears throat> big for one person, one organization to actually own it. So, so let's make a map or let's create some strategies, let's say. So let's start from the bottom up. So if I am a community member, what is my role in making sure that we are addressing these systemic issues. I want to take it, you know, like one stakeholder at a time, right? So what as a community member should I be doing to bring issues to light to make sure that I am holistically being served and well, getting my the, voice out there? Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I think the first thing is identifying, you know, the specific area that you want to work on, right? And then do the mapping, but don't do that alone, right? I was talking to um some folks at Vital Strategies in New York, and we're mm-hmm. talking about the opioid epidemic and how, you know, there's been a 40% increase in opioid deaths among Black people in Philadelphia, but we don't have a systemic response to that. Our systemic response is still to what's happening in Kensington, not what's happening in West Philly in private homes. And that part of that is because we're not talking to communities in West Philly, right? We're not getting them to buy into that this is actually a problem that they actually need to own, right? And how they can own it. And so the the first thing is when we identify, like when we identify that there is a thing that needs addressing, also identify who the community is that cares about that issue. And if there's not a community that cares about it, work first on helping that community understand why they need to care about it. Because if you try to go at it alone, if you try to go at it alone, you're not going to get into those households. It's It's sort of like HIV, right? When HIV first came out, folks said it was a white gay disease, right? And as a result of that, the churches, our civic groups, our fraternities, sororities, all of those folks closed their door on that issue. 
And then and, and what ended up happening was the numbers kept creeping up, creeping up, creeping up, creeping up until where we are today, where most of the HIV cases continue to be among black men and black women in our country still. Right. And it's because we didn't do the approach of bringing the community on early. Like, why is this important? How does this touch your child? How does this touch your husband? How does this touch your workplace? How does this touch your partner? Right. Helping people from that, like the, the ideal of community building and transformation that says it's available for one leader. Right. Cause that's, that's, that's historically what we been using. It's a, right. a really oppressive kind of model, right? There's one person and that one person becomes the face and the voice of the whole entire community. And then that one person, you know, drops off the face of the earth, gets sick or moves on to something else. And then our issues are completely gone, right? And so the first approach is that you have to build community around whatever it is that you're trying to change. And once you build community, you have to be n- not just um, talking with them, you have to be listening. Yeah. And you have to try on things that may be different from what you believe, right? You have to try on other people's point of view. You have to try on other people's solutions because here's the thing. I don't live in West Philly, right? Right. I don't know as much about, you know, what happens at 52nd and Market or, or 52nd and Spruce Malcolm X Park. I don't know as much as those people who live around that park know, right? Right. And unless I'm really investing in a solution for a geographic community, it has to include those community Mm -hmm. folks, building it from the ground up and then invite other people. Then invite other people, invite systems, right? Invite government, invite philanthropy, invite businesses, uh, uh, you know, invite university, right? Invite the academics. After you've, after as a community, you've identified and said, this is our situation. This is what we believe needs to be done. And now let's unpack that with all of the systems that are touch points for that issue. That's an investment, right? Come on, Valerie. Let's go. So I'm thinking, I'm an established nonprofit in West Philly. I see this problem, but we already have a mission. We've been around for a while. We have a CEO who may, you know, have been around for the entire time the organization is around and we think we know the answer. So me, as someone who's listening to you, super, super into it. And it's like, yes, this is what we need to do. How do I make that happen? I think we have a lot of listeners who are like, not executive director level, like, we think we know what the solutions are. We hear things that are really inspiring and we want to take advantage of them, but we're at an established nonprofit. So have you seen that work? Has that, you know, been anything you've experienced? Well, I, I think that, I mean, like the organization that I work with self, you know, we're an established nonprofit, right? But me as a person, as a professional, as someone, you know, is, is, is really invested in community work. I want to be able to say to the person that the organization that you're talking about, yes, you do have an answer. You do have the answer, right? That that having multiple answers does not take away from the answer that you have, right? That's a different conversation that people haven't really been willing to have. And the minute people realize that I'm not trying to take your money, I'm not trying to take your focus, that I believe that what you're doing is, is, is helpful, 
then they're not, you know, they're not all up in arms about, you know, talking to other people, right? The, the, the one thing that I also believe is that there is not one perfect solution. There is no one perfect solution. That it is, there are multiple solutions. And if we can embrace multiple solutions that meet at a fork in the road for a purpose. Yes. Right? Then we're going to get to a place where transformation is actually possible. And we have to say to people that that's that 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 they're good, like they're worthy, right? That's been said a lot these days, right? That they're worthy, right? That what they're doing is worthy. I mean, I think about as an example, as an example, and y'all can stop me if y'all if y'all if y'all want to, but as an example, <laughs> go go. <laughs> so the city gave out, you know, money for mm-hmm. violence prevention. Mm-hmm maybe 20 different groups. Mm -hmm. Some of them got 20,000, some got Mm -hmm. 10,000, some got Mm 5,000. How does, how does that make any systemic change in our community? Yeah. How does $5,000 prevent violence for a city of how many million people? Right. Or how about four months after being awarded, those organizations are now being forced to now, participate in meetings with consultants that the city took money from that pot from to pay instead of putting it towards those nonprofits that needed it. And a lot of those nonprofits don't even need those consultants because part of the agreement was they hired their own. Well, yep. Yep. Yes. Yes. And yes. The, the, the big picture, the big picture for me is when you have 20 organizations that get no more than $20,000 to address something as big as gun violence in our city. Mm -hmm. And those groups are not in any way connected to each other around any particular goals or outcomes. Mm -hmm. Then you have a problem. Then you have a problem. And I mean, this is not rocket science, right? This is not rocket science. These groups aren't talking to each other. They don't have. So I will say that is the point of the consultants to now force them to talk to each other. If it was an intentional practice, that would have one been established in the beginning and even looked at in terms of applications where there was overlap. So there can be a concerted effort because all of these organizations, as much as you're making them talk to each other, they own, they all have their own theory of practice. They all have their own niche. They not might be even serving the same communities, right? So you've got 5,000 here and 10,000 here. So even if they are talking to each other, there is not much that can happen. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, the practice called community of change practice, but it's basically like where, um, What's her name? Uh, Etienne Wegner um, came up with this model where you bring people who identify a particular issue and they're from all different sort of, you know, makeups of the community. And they define three aims or general aims about the work. Right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean it, it, the aims are general enough that what this group is doing can they can identify how their work fits into a particular aim and that would be their work. Like if you're not doing that stuff from the beginning to go back four months later and say to people, let's go back and do something. Guess what? Here's the problem with that. That's what we've told poor communities and black communities Mm -hmm. and brown communities over and over and over again. We've said, we got this wrong again. 
Let's go back and try it again. And every time we get it wrong, our communities become disinterested, become disconnected. And in the meantime, the harm is still happening. The bodies are still counting up, loading up. Right. And the trust is now gone. And the so trust. Now, and when they're, it's like the boy who cried wolf, right? Like when they're now ready to be intentional, then we're like, eh, we don't really want to rock with you because you've already done so much harm. You've already laid a ground to so, for so much distrust. And again, I say it's not rocket science, right? It's, no, it's, not. it's not like, you know, I could have talked to them and said, oh, no, don't do it that way. Have you talked? Have you gotten a community consensus on this approach? Right. But this is what happens every single time we have a top-down approach to community transformation that ends up being community harming. Yeah. That ends up being community harming. And it's systemic change Mm -hmm. would require that the people responsible, even for this latest one, acknowledge the harm that their decisions caused our communities. That that amount of time, that taking four months or six months away from the important work that these organizations were doing is harm to our communities. Acknowledge that, atone for it, and then say, what do you, how do you think we should move forward? Don't come back and say, you got a new plan. Don't say so you, you got that you brain. decided on your own in your silo, in your exactly. ivory tower, like I like, Ex- like to call it. Exactly. Yeah. So who who has gotten it right? Like where are there some examples, if there are examples, of communities, governments where there's been this, I'll just say collective effort of all of these different stakeholders that really took this community-centric approach and got it right. Are there any that you can think of? You know, I'm gonna be honest. I mean, I was thinking about this since since last week, be honest with you. And I and I and I and I really want to have, I really want to say, oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. Right. I really right. want to be able to say that. But the truth is, I don't think we're there. I don't think we're there. I think that we are still in pieces. We are still in pieces, and we again haven't committed to something that's actually uh, comprehensive. Now, what one thing that I could maybe talk about a bit, and this is like from the 1950s, right? Mm-hmm. When they adopted the storefront community health model, right? That sort of one shop stop kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where there were um, these healthcare responses um, that were like storefronts. Um, in Black communities and in, in, in Latinx communities. And you could go there and you could get mental health. You can get like at uh, uh, Esperanza or Congreso. You could go there, you could get mental health. You can get uh, physical health. You can get behavioral health. You can get all of that, right? Because the more people are required to use either their brain energy or their physical energy to go around and get the pieces of things that answer their comprehensive problem, the less likely we're going to be um, successful. And 
from a design perspective, you think about that, you know, just think about the number of children in the foster care and adoption system who leave that system with no plan. And then they come to the homeless system and we still don't have a comprehensive plan. We're still putting together pieces that address, you know, the immediate homelessness, the do 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 But the comprehensive plan that starts from day one when you enter into foster care, day one when you enter into the adoption system, there should be a plan that talks about how you are going to transform out of this system into housing, right? Not into uh, a homeless system, not into a hospital, not into uh, 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 being targeted, um, you know, for, with sex crimes and all of those kind of things that people, you know, target um, people, young people for and try to get them to go into, you know, those areas. We should have a plan that says that we should know that if a young person exits the DHS system and that young person needs housing, that we've connected them. We should know that if that young person needs behavioral health, we've connected them, that there's tentacles right. that actually uh, measure that as a success. Like one of the things that I've done here um, at, at, at self is to say to people who are partners, our program partners, like it's not enough for me, for me and you to be program partners. Um, it's not enough for you to come to my site and, you know, see 25 people, put them into your system, and then, you know, go back to your site. If you can't tell me how your work is connected to the transformational work that we're trying to do, then we shouldn't be partners. Because I'm not interested in investing money, time, and resources in partnerships that aren't interested in changing the quality of life, the transformational nature that we actually want to see uh, in our participants. And it's hard for people to accept that because they've been told all this time, this is my piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. That's your piece right. of the puzzle. And we don't have to share. We don't know. Well, how do we help the person? You just show them let's, around. Let's, you know that, yeah. Mike. You just so let's talk around. about, so let's introduce our listeners to self. And let's talk about that transformational change that you're actually trying to make and what others can learn from it. Yeah. So um, here's the thing. When, when self has been around for over 30 years, right? I have been here for four years. And on any given day, we serve probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 people, right? Most of whom live in either our emergency housing or our permanent housing. When I came on board, we were not doing any permanent housing solutions. We were only doing emergency housing, that is shelter, right? Or transitional housing. Well, here's the thing about that. That's temporary. That's temporary. And it may be temporarily transformational, but it's not systemically transformational, right? And so what I said and what our team has said is we have to invest in permanent housing, right? And not just this sort of stale conversation about affordable housing, because I'm going to tell you, that's a very stale conversation. People got to get real with what that really means, right? Affordable housing is not low income housing. It's not no income housing. You mm -hmm. can't use affordable housing for a 70-year-old senior who's living on SSI at $800 a month and think that they're going to be able to afford affordable housing. That doesn't happen, right? And so while it's sexy 
to talk about affordable housing and people politically engage in conversations about uh, affordable housing because it's easy for certain communities to digest that Mm -hmm. as opposed to saying we actually have a responsibility, a reparative responsibility, right, to correct history because that 75-year-old who's living on $800 didn't just get there because they were lazy. They didn't just get there because they didn't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? They got there because there were systems that got them there, right? And so we need a systemic response that actually says, who do you think, even at 75, can live on $800? Right. I mean, that goes to the whole thing of minimum wage and just a livable income right? Like that's, I mean, it's all part of that tentacle, right? Let me say something about that real quick, because the city has adopted this sort of thing where they require uh, contractors to get to providing $15 an hour, I think by either 2023 or 2024, right? Some year that that number is going to actually be higher. Well, the numbers are already higher because the $15... The $15 livable wage, we've been talking about that for 10 years, honestly. I like, let's be clear. We've been talking about that for 10 years. But they adopt this thing, and then they say, well, you have to, you have to, you have to do this. You have to adopt this. You have to pay your people this amount of money. But they aren't increasing the amount of money that they're actually giving you to do the services. Right? For years. They have not increased right. the wage for but years. You, but, but you know, you, you know what people like me do? We say, by 2023, what you just said, Monique, that it's not going to, that $15 is not going to be what people think it is. So we made a commitment last year. We, I went, me and my team, we went back and we cut, we cut, literally cut from all of our lines and said, we are going to reach the 15 minimum mm-hmm. in this current year. And we did, but we had to make that sacrifice. That's what political will is about. Right. To be able to say, even with the limited resources that we have, because they are limited, that we're going to make that sacrifice because we can't be the organization that says, oh, you got to do better in this and you got to do better in that. And our team members are making thirteen dollars and twenty five cents. That's not the example. So we made Mm -hmm. tough decisions. We used our own political will. And now, interesting enough, now in this year's budget, I watched the mayor's budget address yesterday. In this year's budget, they're actually asking for increases so that organizations can get to that 15. And you know what? You know what's going to happen? Organizations like mine that had the political will and and, and made the change early, mm-hmm. we're not going to benefit from that. Mm. We're not going to benefit from that. Yeah, there's just something really, there's something just really backwards about life for some, for some strange reason. And I really just feel like we're not, we just want to put band-aids on things. And I think it's just very, it's just done very selfishly, right? Because there are so many things, you know, off topic we go. (laughs) Um, I think about student loans. But we've got all this aid for Ukraine. We've got all this aid for whatever else. Or I think about that um, 
Charlemagne and uh, Kamala Harris interview, he's like, well, no, we're giving out this money. Like you respect him. We're uplifting black people out of poverty. I'm like, so one, you gave them a, like a one-time or one-year thing. Then they got to pay taxes on it. Yep. So it was really a loan. You basically paid a loan all of Black America, and now you took it away from them. So now that help that they were getting, they're now back in this situation they were before. So how were you really doing any of that? But we got money for everybody else, right? They just passed the anti-lynching bill, right? When there was Asian hate crime, yo, that bill got signed immediately. 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 I'm, and yeah. you know what? Rightfully so, right? Yeah. Right? No, rightfully so. But, no, no hate but, against but it. But there's the anti-lynching bill should have been signed a long time ago. Long time ago. It should have taken been, 50 years to get a, get that to get I that forget, bill. I feel like they said it's been up to vote like 80 times or something stupid like that, right? I was um I was just reading. I think it was Pew was doing poverty uh, statistics on Philadelphia since we're one of the largest uh, cities with the largest poverty rates for however many years. And it was on the decline going into the pandemic. And um, I think it said the statistics showed that 2020 was the lowest rate of poverty in Philadelphia in 20 something years. And it was because of all the stimulus checks and all of the relief programs and everything that was related to the pandemic and poverty immediately shot up again in 2021 when all of those programs closed. So there's an answer. That's not really, right. You just don't want to do it. Yeah, that's not really like, oh, we decreased. Our poverty rate has been at 23% for the last 20 years. Exactly. Like just because you did a temporary fix, like we could even look at it as a pilot. Okay, we see that it worked. What's the next step? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think right. it was. It said they lifted seventy-five thousand Philadelphians out of poverty because of the stimulus and uh, the relief programming, and that's seventy-five thousand individuals who plunged right back into poverty as soon as those programs ended. It's ridiculous. Because again, like we've been talking about, it's not systemic. It's 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 it's, it's here's the sexiness of these issues, right? There's a audience for refugees from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. There's an audience for refugees from the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And again, I say rightfully so, right? Because that's rightfully America, so. right? That's America. It's a need. They're people. We're humans. But, but at the same time. At the same time. At the same time, where is your appetite for the Black and Brown Americans who you have stood on top of our necks for over 400 years? and fight us tooth and nail and call us lazy and welfare moms, where is your systemic change for us? Where is that? I think it's where is the systemic change, not only for the Black and Brown communities. I was having this conversation recently about Trump, the Trump election and, you know, and how he, how he was able to win. And he was able to win because like, I didn't understand the plight of middle America or middle Pennsylvania, right? Like I did not understand it until he gave it a platform and I commend his team. I'm sure it wasn't him, but I commend his team because that is an issue. And in, in reality, they actually hold most of the welfare, right? Like they are with some of, they're the biggest recipients. It's not even the black community. So it's disheartening that if it is not something that is lining the pockets of the 1%, just to be honest, like it's just overlooked. 
And in Philadelphia, because we have a majority black and brown population, which is also disheartening because our leadership is black and brown. So that's a whole other thing. Hello, hello but and goodbye. There, there's just something wrong with just letting people suffer. And it's, and it's even more wrong when you are quick to aid people of another country, bring them in, settle them. I mean, and, and we talk about like homelessness and a lot of, a lot of people that are living on the street, you know, you guys have more understanding of that than I do, but we think of that as homelessness and not the person that's been couch surfing in different homes, two generations in one apartment, like that, like that family that lost their house in Fairmount to that fire Absolutely. in Christmas, right? Like totally preventable. Totally preventable. But that is a type of homelessness that we are off we are also overlooking. And the problem is much bigger than it is. And a lot of these problems are much bigger than it is, but because people are okay with a family living on top of each other because it helps them keep money in their pocket, it's, it's, it's good. Um, we're off topic. I'm not even sure where I'm going with that, but I just feel like, oh, well, it's all systemic, right? Like there, so where do we go? So where do we start from here going forward? Where should our listeners, our foundations, our nonprofits, our politicians, like where should they go? Our community members, are there books that they should be looking at? Are there practices they should be looking at? How can we move forward to just making this, I'm just going to say the utopia that it should be? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I always just go back to this sort of community of practice model and say, you know what, if someone invests $2 million, in a group of neighborhood organizations, neighborhood community folks, leaders, churches, faith institutions, you invest $2 million, pick a couple of aims and say to that community, we're, these are the aims, these are the problems that we're going to solve. And we're going to give you the money to actually solve them. We're going to give you the data. We're going to give you the, 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 um, consultants, the support to actually do it, it can be done. I, I chaired the Act Against AIDS Leadership Initiative, which was a project of the Centers for Disease Control. I, I chaired it for uh, two years. And it was the first time that we, that we brought together using that model, the NACP, the Urban League, Farm Workers Justice, different fraternities and sororities, civic organizations, like 22 of us. And these folks had never done any direct work around HIV, right? And we said, we're going to use this community of practice model and we're going to invest money in your organizations and you're going to determine with these aims, how are you going to get messaging and, and, and information to your constituency, NAACP, to your constituency, Farm Workers Justice, about HIV, right? And they were able to do that because someone invested, invested actual money and invested a model, invested consultants, invested data, and, and the group came up with what they thought the outcomes could be, right? And getting more, I mean, during that time, like you're reading so much more about, um, you know, HIV in farm worker communities. Hmm. Whoever talked about that before? I didn't know that was a thing. It is absolutely a thing. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's everywhere, but I didn't yeah. know it was like an actual, like prevalent, interesting. I mean, just think about it. Who the farm worker community is. Some of them are seasonal. Some of them come back and forth across the border for the work. 
right? Most of the information around HIV and all of that stuff is not even in any kind of language that folks that folks you know in that in, in in from that community can actually read or hear or understand, right? And so, right. just getting information, right? Getting trusted resources. Think about it from a cultural standpoint. We're not going around in that community talking about sex, right? Mm-hmm. Hardly doing it in the black community, but we're definitely not doing it in a predominantly Catholic. Latinx community. You know what I'm saying? And so you have to have trusted people to have those conversations. It's the same thing around housing. Latinx folks are not even accessing housing. So we get all this data about, you know, 40, you know, all the people, African-Americans who are in the housing system. And then you get to something like 7% Latinx people. And you know why? Because there's no access point. There's no cultural understanding of that community that actually invites them to even to the front door. But we have all this data that says, you know, all the stuff that we're doing. That's the challenge, right? And so, again, it is really investing in community approaches. It's sort of like, you know, the same thing that people have been talking about policing. Invest in community policing. Invest in hearing regular, everyday people's voices. Like I say, you know, I was talking to people about, you know, the issues that are happening in Kensington. When a person, when a drug dealer gets shot, mm-hmm. That drug dealer goes to the hospital. There's an opportunity to engage that person right then and there in the hospital. Are we doing enough of that? Are we saying when they get shot that you don't have to go back to the corner because we can actually get you a job that's going to pay $20 an hour? We can get you into housing so you're not living on the street or living cramped up with 20 other people. Those are things that we can actually do. If we can bring thousands of people who were displaced because of Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina and put, right. open up a school and two schools to house them for two years, we can certainly invest in getting drug dealers who believe that dealing drugs is their only option to success. Well, I think the other thing is that you're pointing out is that I don't think that people realize there's a connection right? Like even when you look at the gun violence, all they see is, you know, black people being black people, even with that whole Will Smith thing, not gonna go off topic on that, you know, but you know, like, oh, that's just black people perpetuating. There's some, you need therapy, there's something else going on there, right? We're not looking at the root cause of that. People are robbing and stealing and holding people at gunpoint because they are desperate in need of money. They are in need of food. They are in need of housing. And this is how they are going about getting it because they can't do it for seven twenty-five or whatever people are doing. They can't do it at a waitress rate of the two one twenty and whatever, you know what I'm saying? So they're going about it. I'm going to get mine the way that I can, because I need to support myself and my family. Exactly. And I don't think that there's enough of a connection going back to your tentacles and mapping that people are really addressing it that way. They're just seeing it as they're drug dealers. They're bad people. They're black people. They're prone to violence. That's what it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you remember, uh, this was some years ago too, where um, I forgot the name of the group, but they did this study that basically said that a small percentage of the same people mm-hmm. commit the crimes. And that small percentage of people are connected to households and communities where crime has been committed. And so it's 
you know, I'm not excusing bad behavior, but some right. of it is learned environmentally as a behavior that is acceptable because my dad, right. My dad, that's how he, that's how he paid the bills. That's, that's how, how he, he paid the bills. And, and yeah, he went to jail. He's in jail for 20 years. So now I got to pick up the mantle. Now I have to run the family business. I have to run the family business. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So where do we go? What can we, so we got our community practice of change. Is there a book that we should be looking at? Is there, is there, is there a white paper? Is there a study? Is there even some research on the collective that you brought together um, that we could take a look at to really start learning where to go from here? Yeah. I mean, I would say that uh, any of the papers by uh, Etienne Wegner, mm-hmm. W-E-G-N-E-R, that really explains how community of practice works and how it invests in uh, community deciding what community needs uh, is really a good place to start, right? I'm actually right now writing sort of a low focus um, program um, that, you know, in the conversation with the folks from New York about overdose and overdose, um, overdose deaths in black communities where, you know, I presented that ideal to them and they were like, okay, well, we're not, you know, making any promises, but let's see what, you know, something looks like around it. It's an investment, right? And so yeah. I'm actually working on something like, you know, sort of that, that talks about community of practice and how we can have, you know, different community groups and community leaders and, um, young people and, and older people and pastors and faith leaders um, really be um, a part of the solution and not that they all have to agree that there is one solution, right? Um, and so, I, again, I, I can't think of anything specific besides pointing you to the articles around, mm-hmm. you know, how community of practice actually work, because that's the investment that I actually believe um, our communities need, right? That, that, that they are centered as the owners and the solution to the issues that communities are facing, that there is no need um, for this savior complex, Mm. right? There's no need uh, for this missionary complex to come in um, and save our communities. We actually have the ability to save ourselves. We do need resources to do that, right? We do need political will to do that right? We do need space to do that. And space to do that also means that some people who have been holding space Mm, need to give it up, need to give it up. They need to give it up. Like how many arguments are we going to have about this violence prevention money? We've been arguing about it for the last three years. How many arguments are we going to have about it? Obviously more. Yeah, obviously more, just enough to make it look as though we're doing something to get elected for office and to get people off our backs yeah well we need to we need to put those grave markers on everybody's desk yeah you know i'm really hoping that the experience that jamie gautier had recently wakes up the city right or even mary gay scanlon right like she was carjacked uh this summer i believe yep, right down like at the park down at the park i mean and he didn't know, right? Like he, they came forward. He, he needed a, he was trying to sell a car, right? Like it's, it, yeah. I mean, we can keep going on and on. Um, but I mean, this has been, this has been an awesome, 
talk and I want to keep going. You know, you and I are going to keep going because that's what we <laughs> do. But uh, is there is there anything, Valerie, you want to say? I know, you know, you say your voice. I think your voice is OK. It's a little scratchy, <laughs> but we're good. This is me trying. Um, the only thing that I pulled up while we were talking, there are um, wage calculators for how mm -hmm. much you need to support a family versus what the federal uh, wage minimum wage is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a huge indicator. I think it said a single mother of, I can't remember if it was two or three, would have to work 138 hours a week at minimum wage in order to afford to support three kids, which is unreal and mm -hmm. unrealistic. And when we're talking about violence in Philadelphia, this is exactly why folks are turning to drugs or selling stolen cars or any of the above because they cannot live, they can't live. at minimum wage. They just, they just can't do it. I take public transportation to work every day. At 12th and Gerard, I get on the 23 bus at 12th and Gerard. They are building condominiums. One that they built last year, I looked up, you know, how much they cost. And the cheapest one was like $2,500 a month at 12th and Gerard. Yeah. Well, you know, that's now Center City North. Well, when I, if, if, if you live <laughs> in those communities as a poor person and you it's see unreal. that happening, you automatically give up hope. Yeah, it's happening well, yeah, in my neighborhood too. It's I live not even at, giving uh, up hope. Where do you live? I live at Frontenberg's and there um, are several, several things going in right now because we're one of the Fishtown L stops. Um, but they're putting in 110 units on my corner and they touted it as affordable. We had many community meetings where they said, we're putting in affordable units so people in your community will afford to live there. And we said, okay, great. So what is the rent? And they said, well, the rent for a studio is going to be 1200, but That's we're going to raise mortgage. it. Exactly. It's more than my mortgage. And they said, well, we're going to, we're going to make some 10 units affordable. So 10 of them will be available at 80% of the area median income, which means it's actually only going to be, you know, $1,050 a month. And we were like, that's more than the mortgage any of us on this block pays a month. So you are pricing us out of our own block. And and, 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 and that's and systemic, it, though. That's, that's systemic. systemic. The reason the developers others... are able to do that is because we have a system in Philadelphia that says if you're going to develop new housing, you mm -hmm. have to do either you have to build a percentage that is affordable housing mm -hmm. or you have to give a certain amount of money into the housing trust fund. Yeah. Most of them choose to go the opposite. They don't want to build fund. at all. Yeah. But that's not affordable. They and want to be allowed to be the answer. During it's a community affordable. meeting, they wanted yeah. us to commend them. They kept saying, we could have just put this money into the housing trust, but we're giving this back to you. And I was like, are you really? No. So I, I mean, but the I other side of that, that people aren't even thinking about, I was having this conversation. I didn't understand how gentrification really impacted our community. So I had this conversation and this woman was saying, you know, she worked for the city. She was living off her pension. So she's on a fixed income. She raised her kids in that house. The house was paid off. She only has to pay her taxes every year. She was able to do that and eat and live. This is in, um, I think around like uh, Gerard College or uh, not Gerard College. Uh, yeah, around like the Fairmount area, right? And she was saying that they were building these new buildings. 
and she, you know, she went to counsel. I'm not going to say who she went to, but she went to counsel. She complained about it. Like, okay. And then from there, what happened was her, the taxes went up because it drove the property value up. Yep. And it drove it up so high that she could no longer afford to live in the house that her and her husband, who was deceased, had bought and paid off and raised mm-hmm. their kids in. And now she had to move to the bottom or to West Philadelphia, which is well, not don't move to the bottom because that's that's, that's where, but that's, changing. But that's that changing is where she, <laughs> that is where she went to because she that's be where she could. Soon. That's where she, well, this, right. But that's where she went to then. This is a couple of years ago. And I'm not, we, it's a couple of years ago, we had the conversation. So I'm not even sure when she actually moved there because it was affordable. And now you're right. Like she's going to be priced out of that because yep. it has nothing to do with, she can't, she can't afford to pay 1050. She can't afford, afford to pay 1200. And nope. if you're now driving her mortgage up, it's mm-hmm. like, well, you're not even living here. You got your house. Well, yeah, but now- why can't we give long-term, long-time owners seniors people yep. on fixed incomes a subsidy yep. on their yep. taxes on their on their on, on their uh land use tax why can't we do that i've oh, been here can. six why years not? we've lost half of the long-term residents on this block in the six years i've lived here for for those reasons and our block captain carmen um god lover she is amazing she looks out for everything on the block she takes in everybody's packages she texted me yesterday and said your 13-year-old son just came home with a girl. Are you home or are you at work? <laughs> wow, that's old school. That's, old, that's so old school. I love it. I was it. home, but also I was like, thank you. <laughs> thank right. you. But her house is going to butt right up against these 110 units. And the more her taxes go up, she's in the exact same situation. She's been here 40 years. Her house is paid off, but her taxes go up every year. And at a certain yeah. point, her fixed income is not going to cover it. And She's like the gem of the block, but also she spent her whole entire life here. She shouldn't have yeah. to leave. So it's sort of like part of like the conversation that a lot of employers are having around giving um, new hires um, hiring bonuses or, right. but we don't do anything to give um, dedicated and long-term employees bonuses to keep them employed. Right. But it's the same thing around housing. We give Tax new rates. people 10-year tax abatements to move in our communities, but we give nothing to long-term community folks who built those communities, who've kept those communities for years and years and years. We do nothing to give them an abatement that allows them to stay in their homes. Something wrong with that thinking. And I think, you know, you know, Monique, what you sort of touched on earlier about, you know, who's making these decisions, right? Yeah. The people who've been making these decisions are skin folk, my skin folk, Mm -hmm. for the most part. They're my skin folk, but they are, they've been, hmm, they've bought into an oppressive and infiltrated system mm-hmm. that is a, a, a web, a web of missed opportunity from, and I'm a, a union supporter, but I also know that there are some things that some of the unions have done that have not been fair to poor people, have not been fair to black and brown people, right? So I'm not going to say that we have to have either or we can have both of those conversations right but also you know from some of these business businesses right a a lot of these businesses haven't really i mean why are we still hearing about wells fargo not refinancing 50 percent of the loans of black people yeah 50 percent of their 
of black people who have Wells Fargo's loans already did fail to get a refinance. 50% taking our, taking our public dollars out of those places that are not committed to the kind of transformation that our communities actually need to see. When you've been a bad actor over and over and over again, why should you continue to be able to use my public dollars that I work hard for? Yeah. Well, we're getting a public bank, hopefully. My question is, how will that be managed? We're all, yeah, we're so off topic. I, I was going to say, I Councilman Green there. is definitely trying to, you know, make that happen. And I could see where it could, you know, where it could have, you know, some, some pluses, but we you know you had to go back to, you know, we used to have public hospitals and, and, and look what happened to those. Yes. Our favorite show that we always talk about is New Amsterdam, which is based on Bellevue Hospital in New York, which yeah. is the oldest public hospital. Um, it's a, yeah. I mean, we're not even off topic. We're just in the weeds. And this just goes to show that one, going back to Mike's point, that there's just so many tentacles to these issues that when funders look at funding, they need to look at all the tentacles and not just the piece that they're trying to fund because they're not going to make the impact they want if they don't know what else is impacting that issue. Um, And nonprofits as well, right? Like you cannot really, I've always questioned nonprofits say like, oh, we we got a hundred percent this. I'm like, was it just you that helped that person though? We got to look at this holistically. And I think that that's what we failed to do. I mean, I, like I said, I enjoy this conversation. We can go on probably for the rest of the day. So, but I want to spare our listeners. Um, <laughs> so I appreciate your time. I appreciate being share... here. Thank you both for inviting oh, me. It's awesome. Awesome. Sure. Awesome conversation. But I want to thank you for your time, Valerie. I hope you feel better. Uh, by yes, the time this comes better. out, you will feel better. So we're going to have to do a live. Oh, you know, we have to go back to doing our live recap. So we'll do a, a live and maybe we'll invite Mike on. Um, we can have a little bit further conversation about this. That would be but, awesome. Yeah. Well, if you didn't know, now you know, this has been Beyond Philanthropy. Awesome sauce. <laughs>